All right, so a little bit of background before we get into chapter one. Uh, at first glance, it would seem pretty obvious that this book was written by the Apostle John. After all, it's called First John. Um, but if you read through, uh, you won't find John signing his name to it. Uh, where Paul would start his epistles with uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints at Ephesus or Galatia or Philippi. And John doesn't do that. He doesn't sign his name at the beginning or at the end of the book, like we, we sign our names to letters nowadays at the end. Um, he doesn't do that at all in First John. You won't find his name mentioned. If you move on to Second John, you'll find the same thing. He doesn't put his name to the book there either. Uh, and he doesn't do it in Third John. If you go back to the Gospel of John, you won't find John's name there either. Uh, the only John you'll find is John the Baptist. The only reference uh, in the gospel that John has to himself, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, and so you see that John was a humble man. He really wanted to emphasize Christ and not himself. And so of the five books that John wrote, the only one that he did sign his name to clearly was the book of Revelation. Um, and that was important. Uh, that everybody knew that the revelation was to him personally and it was his responsibility to share what Jesus had shown him. And even though uh, John doesn't clearly sign the letter, it's pretty much universally accepted that he is the author. Uh, the history backs that up. Uh, the grammatical style of the book and the terminology that, that John used was unique to him. And so I think everyone is in agreement that it was John who wrote the book. Uh, your Bible might say that at the at the beginning there, the first epistle of John. Epistle means obviously just a letter. Um, John wrote three of them, first, second, and third John. The first uh, epistle of John uh, is known as a general epistle. It's written not to a specific person or church, but to generally uh, Christian believers of that time, and it was circulated, and um, we're blessed to have it today. And he addressed a few issues that were... Uh, um, around at that time, uh, many of which are still issues for us today that we can look at and we'll study together. It's most likely that John wrote the book uh, when he was in Ephesus, um, most put the time of writing around uh, 90 AD, so John was getting old, he was getting on in years, uh, possibly all the other apostles had already passed away by the time that John wrote this book. So he's one of the, one of the uh, last few of those gener first generation Christians uh, those who could personally testify to spend, spending time with Christ, seeing the things that he did with their own eyes and hearing his words with their own ears. And we can see that if we look in verse 1, and down at the end we see, uh, we'll read the whole verse, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He's looked upon Christ. His hands have handled him concerning the word of life. So that gives that extra meaning that his, was his personal testimony. He had first-hand experience of Jesus' ministry. John, of course, was, was known as the disciple of love. He was one of those inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Uh, it, was, it was these that saw even more of Jesus' ministry than the other disciples. Uh, well, they, they are the three that saw Jesus transfigured. Uh, it was the three that Jesus took with him to watch and pray as he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane before uh, his crucifixion. 
It was John who Jesus entrusted to look after his mother, uh, making provision for Mary while he was on the cross. So while John was uh, known as the disciple of love, he was still uh, a bit of a man's man. He was a fisherman by trade with James's brother, worked for his father Zebedee in the fishing business. Uh, he had a tremendous zeal for the truth and for Christ, uh, so much so that Jesus nicknamed him and James the sons of thunder. And we see in Luke chapter 9 that uh, John and James asked Jesus' permission to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans who didn't receive Jesus at that time into their town. Uh, he had some fire in him. And Jesus had to rein him in a little bit and explain that he came to seek and to save men's lives and not to destroy them. But the fire is still evident in this little book that we'll study together. He speaks with urgency, passion, and authority. He doesn't pull his punches when he addresses error, but he clearly proclaims the truth in love. So what's the purpose of John's book? What's the purpose of this letter? He makes... Uh, that quite easy for us. He spells it out a number of times. Uh, John says three times uh, in this little book, along the, something along the lines of, I write to you so that. I write unto you so that. Um, and we'll have a look at those briefly now because it gives a good uh, intro into his reasoning why uh, and the, the main points of the, of the book. Uh, look in First uh, John chapter 1 and verse 4. I think I'll put that on the screen. Thank you. Um, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Jesus, uh, John wanted to inform the readers the truth of the gospel so that their joy may be full. And Jesus himself said, I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That joyful life comes from a sure foundation of truth to stand on by knowing how to live out lives in fellowship with Jesus, with the Father and with other believers. And we'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. Secondly, if you turn to uh, chapter 2, verses one, uh, verse 1, um, it says there, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you, might not, you may not sin. Uh, at this time, there was a, um, there was a ri rise in a belief called Gnosticism. Uh, that was a belief that uh, had all sorts of wonky ideas, but one of them was that the knowledge was the ultimate prize. Knowledge was more important than holiness and just about anything else. And John reminds his readers and reminds true believers that Christianity has a higher calling than that, has a higher standard. He urges true believers towards holiness, to walk in the light as God is in the light, and to cling to the truth of gospel and not be sidetracked by other doctrine. This uh, second generation of believers was now responsible for the continuing task of spreading the gospel sharing that good news. There was false doctrine outside the church and others trying to spread lies from within the church. And so he encourages us that he writes to us that, he, that we may not sin. Then uh, if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, over a couple of pages, he says the third time, these things I have written to you. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is one of the key points that we're going to look at together as we study through, one of the key things that he addresses. If you've ever wondered about your security as a Christian, if you've ever questioned whether you can truly know beyond all doubt that you have eternal life, 
John answers this question for you. We can know that we have eternal life and that we're bound for heaven. We can have that sure knowledge. Other religions they think we're a bit crazy to have such a, a bold stance. I remember talking to a Jehovah's Witness man, and uh, he was saying he wasn't sure if he'd done enough to go to heaven, but he was sure hoping so. Uh, I felt terrible for him. I really did. I felt awful because I thought, what a terrible position to be in, to not have any assurance of your fate, of your future destination. We don't have to be like that. The Bible makes it very clear. We can know without a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life and that we have it right now in Christ and our relationship with him will be without end. So that is a brief overview of what John wants to talk about. Let's um, look at our text this morning. Chapter 1, verses 1 down to 2, 2. Let's read that together. That which we have heard from the beginning, which we have, uh, that which we, sorry, let me start again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us. From all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for also for the whole world. So this morning I, I want to ask a question, and that's the title of the sermon. And the question is this, are you in fellowship? You see John introducing this idea of fellowship. Are you in fellowship? To understand that question, we need to, to, to sort of understand how John is using that word in, in this chapter 1. He mentions it four times in chapter 1, and uh, he's not talking about what our normal idea of fellowship might be. You know, when we talk about fellowship, it's usually around food, um, but it's being Baptists, uh, but it's sharing a nice time together. It's talking, socializing with each other. That's, that's this idea of fellowship that we have. But that's not how John uses that word. The type of fellowship John means is all or nothing. You're either part of the fellowship or you're not. You're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. See, it's a bit more of a position than it is an experience. Be in fellowship is to have a relationship to the Father, the Son, and his people. To be out of fellowship is to be lost, to be walking in darkness. And so it's a vital question that we need to ask this morning. Are you in fellowship with God? You see, in the first three verses, in verses 1 to 3, John establishes some essential truths. Before he starts building the walls and the roof of this epistle, he sets the foundation in these verses. 
He establishes who Jesus is and that it is only through him that we can enter into this fellowship, into a relationship with him. We see there, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. As we saw a little bit earlier, John was one of the last eyewitnesses to Christ's ministry. So he could speak with absolute authority to what he had seen and heard. He could truly bear witness, as it says there in verse 2, <coughs> to Christ's claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, that Jesus, that Jesus was this eternal life, that he had left heaven, was manifested as a man, lived, died, and rose again. If we look at um, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, on the screen as well. We see the similarities between the Gospel of John and the first chapter of this epistle. In both, John dives right into explaining the fullness of who Jesus is. And notice the words that John uses to describe Jesus in John 1, 1 through 5. Let's read that. It's on the screen there as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We see there the testimony of who Jesus was, his deity. The fact that all things were created by him and through him. We see John calling him the Word, in, John, in uh, the gospel there, and then the saying that he is a source of life, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then he compresses those down in the in First John, and uh, he calls him the Word of Life, bringing those ideas together. Jesus was with God, and he was God. Jesus was the Eternal One, made manifest as the Man, Jesus the Man. As the man, he was the teacher, a leader, a miracle worker, the Messiah and Saviour. That is the word of life that John is talking about. John had been in the box seat of Christ's ministry. In verse 3, we see that John declared what he saw and what he had seen, what he'd seen and experienced. He was only passing on what he'd been taught. I think that's why Jesus chose simple folks to follow him, to be his disciples. Fishermen weren't about anything but practical means, practical things, and they would call it straight. They would just say what they saw and what experienced. It was only through uh, his teaching and the lessons that they learned and through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives that they could share and testify the truth of what they'd seen and heard. So the second part of uh, verse 3 there, we start to talk about this issue of fellowship. Are we in the fellowship or are we not? Uh, if you're in the fellowship, you commune with the Father, with Jesus Christ, and John says, with us. Who's the us he's referring to? The apostles and the true believers of Jesus Christ. True Christians are in fellowship with each other because of the fellowship they have with the Father and Jesus Christ. And what's the, relation, uh, what's the uh, result of this fellowship? 
It says in verse 4, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. I saw a little bit on the DVD this morning about happiness, about joy, and I want to spend just a couple of minutes looking at that idea. This idea that John is talking about, about having full joy, is, a, is the idea of shared, complete joy. Uh, the ESV renders that our joy may be full. How's he achieved this? Well, by, by being reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done for the purpose of adopting us into his fellowship. It's an important thing to note that joy is not happiness. The two things are quite different. You can be happy and not joyful, and likewise you can be joyful and not particularly happy. Happiness is driven by the environment that we're in. It's fleeting. Happiness comes in short bursts when everything is going good and we're having a nice time doing something that we like to do. Uh, Life seems fantastic at that moment, but that's happiness. Many people spend their whole lives bouncing around from happiness to happiness. Uh, What they really need is joy. And joy is something much deeper. It's possible to experience joy without happiness. Uh, In Acts 13, I think I put that on the screen as well. Acts 13, let's turn there as well so I can see it. We see Paul and Barnabas, and they're crossing swords here with the religious leaders in Antioch. These men were envious of the crowds that Paul and Barnabas were were gathering together to hear them preach and teach the truth. And so they started to persecute them, and they cast them out of the area where they were. We see there in verse 50 of chapter 13, that the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem like a particularly happy time for Paul and Barnabas. They were probably taken and physically abused and cast out of the area where they were. Not a normal place that you expect to find joy. But it says there in verse 52 that they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so this joy comes from knowing the truth and from understanding that we have a higher calling and purpose for our lives. Paul and Barnabas could have joy because they knew that they were doing what God had asked them to do. They knew they were in the right and nothing was going to stop them from preaching the truth to all who would listen. So when they were rejected from one place, they simply moved on to another, trusting that it was all part of God's work and that he was sovereign, that he was in control, and they were doing all that were being asked of him, whatever the outcome. And so if joy is not the same as happiness, if it's independent of our environment, where does it come from? Uh, Let's see what Jesus says on this topic, um, and that's on the screen too. In John chapter 15 he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. So the source of joy is twofold. Firstly and primarily is to be abiding in Jesus' love. Those who have not been saved or not been converted can have no relationship with Christ. They simply cannot abide in his love. They can never experience the joy spoken about by Paul or Barnabas or John or any believer who is truly abiding in Christ. And secondly, to have full joy in our lives, we need to be unified and have love one for another. And this is the truth that John reminds us of time and time again, we'll see as we go through in 1 John. So I want to ask again, do we know this joy in our lives? Are we in the fellowship that John is talking about? Verse 5, we see John moves on to teach some things about the character of God and to test whether we are true disciples of Christ. Verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. Light and darkness can't share the same space. Light pushes out the darkness. There is no darkness within the light. And so it is with God that there is no darkness in him. He is holy and pure. And the deeper the understanding we have of that, the more we realize our sinful condition before him. I don't think there's anywhere that illustrates it better in Scripture than in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 9, where Isaiah gets a rare glimpse of the glory of God, the mighty scene in heaven, where these winged seraphim cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The power of their worship shakes the whole room, and the magnificent of his glory, his awesome presence, fills the temple. And I think it's really important to notice how Isaiah responds to such a sight. His response is, woe is me, he says. He is confronted with his own sinfulness. This has an application to us in how we share the gospel with others. So much of the larger Christian community tends to focus heavily on the fact that God is love. But often the equal truth that God is holy is minimized or sometimes even excluded. And the problem is that those who have a sinful condition are not driven to their knees when confronted only with a loving God. The natural progression is to think that a loving God would not let me go to a place called hell. A loving God would, not, would let me get away with my sins because that's the more loving thing to do. So much evangelism tries to convince people that because God loves them so much, they should turn around and show a little bit of love back to God and open their heart up and let Jesus come in. I think we've all heard this kind of gospel. A person may even agree to repeating a prayer or walking down an aisle, but they've never come face to face with the holy God. They've never felt, as Isaiah did, wretched before him. Because they desperately needed a saviour to deal with the sin so evident when placed in front of the God of light. Upon becoming a Christian, you become a child of God, adopted into his family, part of the fellowship. And so it is that if God is light, he is pure and sinless, then surely in our lives we should also be striving to be sinless and pure also. And that's the argument that John makes, and he'll make it again and again through the book. You know, in our sinful state, we love the darkness. We love our sin, and, and holiness is just for those people who are Bible bashers or goody-two-shoes. Um, but once we're converted, 
once we're regenerated or born again, all good words to describe this process of becoming Christians, everything is turned around. We hate our sin and we desire holiness. We want to push out the darkness and walk in the light. We want to be like our father. My parents have a photo of me when I was a little fella. It's probably about five or six. I'm standing there in my old clothes with a little kid's wheelbarrow, a little bit of dirt in the bottom, and next to me is my dad. He's in his proper work clothes with a big contractor's wheelbarrow and lots of dirt in his, and his about three times the size of mine. And together we're building a retaining wall outside our house. And we were working on this project together and I was basically copying everything he was doing. And the truth is, of course, that my father built the wall and I just followed him around. But I was trying to do everything he was trying to, was doing. And I, I don't think my dad would have minded that it wasn't much help that day because he would have got a kick out of seeing me trying to be like him. And isn't that the same with our Heavenly Father? You know, we can't achieve what God can achieve. But if we're truly children of God, we'll be striving to be like him. Verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It's a pretty direct statement from the disciple of love. And it's intended for us to sit up and, and take notice. If you and I claim to be Christians, but live like everyone else around us, John says it plain and simple, you're a liar. It's a lie. To walk in darkness is talking there about a daily living. If in our daily lives we are exactly like everyone around us, if we're comfortable with sinful conversations, movies, TV programs, if we're happy to go into a bar or a casino or a TAB, if our mouths are full of bad language or malicious words, without any remorse for offending God, if we can comfortably do all sorts of sin without any guilt, without any desire to cast aside our sin, and still think that we're in the fellowship, it's a lie. You're not in fellowship with God because if you were, and we know that God is light and in him is no darkness, then that relationship would bring to light our sinful activities. So if we live like this and call ourselves a Christian, we really need to sit down and make sure we were converted. Upon salvation, at that moment when we're born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residency within us. Ephesians 1.13, it's on the screen there, says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so how is it possible that with the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that we would be comfortable living a life of sinfulness without a desire to walk in the light? It's just not possible for the two states, light and darkness, to dwell together comfortably in one person. Now this makes me think about those who profess to be Christians that I've known over the years and yet carried on living sinful lifestyles. I have a number of friends who are in this state, and you might do too. There may be some who for a short time are living in open rebellion, who have been saved and who have known the truth, but choose to live in opposition to it. There's still a war going on within them, but they quench the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. For them, all we can do is pray that they, like a little bit like the prodigal son, will realize that they're mucking around in the pig pen. They need to return to their father and be restored to fellowship. But I would be bold enough to say that the vast majority of people who profess Christ and live like the world 
were never truly saved in the first place. Perhaps they had an experience that they thought was salvation. Perhaps they were trusting in prayer that they repeated after someone else. Maybe they were caught up in an emotional moment. They never dealt with their sin problem. They were never truly converted to to be turned around 180 degrees from where they were going. For those of us with friends and family in this situation, we need to pray even more earnestly for them. For those who are in a rebellion, if they were truly saved at one time, will make it to heaven, even if only by the skin of their teeth. For those who have false professions, those who are not truly saved, they're still in a lost state. They're still on the broad broad way that leads to destruction. It's important to realize that John is not saying here that the true Christian will never sin and will never do anything wrong. And the second part of verse 7 makes that very clear for us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Sinful behavior will grieve the Holy Spirit, and we will be sensitive to this. We will desire holiness and purity even if we struggle to attain it. We will want to be like Christ even if we fail often in our endeavors. Verse 9, we have the comfort that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John also addresses here in the crowd those who think they aren't too bad. Uh, Verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Those who think they don't have sin or they don't have enough sin for it to be a problem before God probably make up a large portion of our community and certainly a lot of the Christian community at large. Many believe that one day God will get out the scales and their good will be put measured against their bad and hopefully it out, the good will outweigh the bad and they'll be okay. This is of course a lie of the devil. We know Romans 3 well. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if you believe that you're without sin or even that you do more good than bad, John says, you are deceiving yourselves. Verse 10, he says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we um, hold this position, it's worse than our lives being a lie only. We're calling God a liar. Because if there's no sin, then we don't need a saviour. For the believer or as John calls it, calls us his little children. He urges us towards a life of purity. You can almost picture John as an old man. He says this uh, little phrase, my little children, time again, in this little book. So this godly old man is urging us towards holiness. It says there in verse um, 1 of chapter 2, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The sin John is referring to here is the worst of all sins. Because if we lie about our sin, that we don't need a saviour. If we have no sin, then we don't need forgiveness. Many inside the church cling to religious services or practices as merit points. Or Christian heritage, or they put their faith in the goodness and the work that they do towards others. And it's our job to pass on the truth that going to church is not enough. Living a good, clean life is inadequate. 
and that there, as it says in Matthew 7, which we have on the screen there as well, I'll read verse 21 as well, it's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I think of all the verses in the Bible, this is possibly one of the scariest. There are many well-meaning people in churches, even Baptist churches, that will be genuinely surprised when they come face to face with Christ. And he says, I never knew you. They were not in the fellowship that John is talking about here. They had never realized that they were wretched and sinful and that their just reward was a very real place called hell. They never fell on their knees and cried out for a saviour, an advocate, as it says in verse 1 there, someone who will stand before the almighty God and say, this one's mine. We can have that Jesus Christ the righteous is the only one who can fulfil that role. Our good deeds can't do it, our church attendance can't do it, our Christian family and upbringing can't do it, uh, they can't be the advocate for us. The Pope in Rome can't be the advocate for us. No matter what we may think, only Christ can be that advocate. Only Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Only he can be that atoning sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. Uh, definition of propitiation, which I like, is satisfying the perfect justice of a holy and righteous God perfect justice. God is holy and so he must have perfect justice. And so to conclude these first 12 verses of of, uh, 1 John chapter 1 and 2, let's look at the three people that John talks about, the three attitudes in verse uh, 8 to 10. If we say that we have no sin, sorry, verse uh, back up to Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's three attitudes in that that little paragraph there. The first man says he's in fellowship. He's the Christian who comes to church on Sunday and who looks the part, says all the right things while at church, but is living a life full of unrepented sin. Although he's religious, the testimony of his life denies his confession as a Christian. His words are empty, His life shows that he never really was born again and converted from darkness to light. Secondly, we see there, there is a man who believes that he has no sin. He doesn't have a sin problem that needs to be dealt with. He thinks he's good enough. He too is living a lie, and more than that, he's calling God a liar and making Jesus a sacrifice on the cross of no effect. Lastly there, there is the one who realizes his sin. He claims Jesus Christ as the the righteous as his propitiation for his sins. He confesses his sins, he pursues holiness, 
and he tastes that joy that John talks about despite his circumstances. So there's three attitudes there. I'm going to ask you this morning, which one do you share? Are you in the fellowship this morning? Do you rely on Jesus Christ to be your advocate and nothing else? Do you desire to walk in the light this morning as he is in the light? Do our lives measure up to our confessions?